Amen. You can be seated. And if you have your Bibles, you can open with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Continuing to work our way through the letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus. Tonight we're looking at Ephesians 6, verses 5 to 9. We'll begin in uh, the reading in chapter 5, in verse 21. Sorry, verse 18 of chapter 5. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Always give thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless." So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart, as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters... Do the same things to them, and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Amen. That is God's word to us this evening. If you've been here in recent weeks, whether it was the Sunday mornings when we were going through Ephesians, or the Wednesday evenings that we've looked at Ephesians, uh, you'll Remember that we've gone through several different, or actually only a couple different relationships of submission and authority in the last few weeks. We've looked at wives and their relationship to their husbands, children and their relationships to their parents, and now we're looking at the relationship of slaves to their masters. I think most of us would agree, if we think about our own hearts, um, but especially just the culture in general, that discontentment 
is a fairly prevalent problem, issue. At the very least, it's a temptation for us. If we could only have different circumstances, if we could only change this about ourselves, or if we could only get this, if we could only have that person's life instead of ours, then we imagine that our lives would somehow magically be fulfilled and happy and joyful and everything that we ever hoped them to be, and we would be satisfied. The problem of discontentment is a heart issue, obviously, but it's a heart issue that often flows out of a sense of identity or flows out of a lack of a sense of identity. I think one of the, the primary areas, at least one of the major areas where we see discontentment manifested in someone's life is often with regard to their vocation, to their full-time occupation, what they do with their lives, what they've been called to. Uh, so each of us has a vocation. No matter who you are, where you're from, where you live, what you do, you have a vocation of some sort. You're either a child and your vocation is to be a child, obedient to your parents. Uh, perhaps you're a wife. Your vocation is to be a wife to your husband, a husband to your wife. Uh, all of us have uh, a vocation when it comes to what we do, at least most of us do, whether we're students or we're employees or we're stay-at-home moms. Whatever it is, all of us has a vocation. And one of the places where discontentment tends to get in deepest and is hardest to get out of us is when it comes to our vocation. And we imagine life would be so much better if I were just in a different position in life. If I had a different calling, if my work, whatever it is, was more meaningful, then I would be really satisfied. Well, the Bible flips that idea on its head because that kind of reasoning says my identity and my worth depends on what I do, on the kind of work that I do. Whereas the Bible, it flips that on its head and it says, actually, the meaning and the value of your work depends on your identity. They're two very different concepts. The reason what we do matters is not found so much in what we do. The reason what we do matters is found primarily because of who we are. We are slaves of Christ. It's going to be Paul's point in the verses that we're looking at this evening. We are slaves of Christ if we're believers. And what gives value to our work, whatever it might be, in whatever context we spend our time, what gives value to our work is that as slaves of Christ, we do our work unto our master, who is the Lord Jesus. And that gives value to work, to every kind of work we could possibly do, as long as it's not inherently immoral. Paul here as I've mentioned, is addressing slaves and masters. And what he's doing, as I hope we'll see, what he's doing is he's saying whether you're a slave under the authority of another man or you're a master in authority over another man, what is equally true of both of you, if you are Christians, is that you are equally slaves of Christ. And that identity as slaves of Christ, whether you're a slave of men or a master of men, that identity as slaves of Christ is what characterizes and determines how you go about your labor and how you fulfill your responsibilities. Paul is making clear in these verses that there is no distinction in the kingdom of God when it comes to worth or value or meaning that's connected to our vocation. Your worth as a member of the kingdom of Christ, is not connected to your particular calling in life, 
what you do with your time, what God has called you to do. That is not your value. That's not your identity. Your value and your identity is found in the fact that you belong to Jesus and you are his slave. And he is your master. If you look at how Paul addresses both slaves and masters here, he calls them both slaves of Christ. So in verse 6, if you look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 6, again, the verses we're looking at are are verses 5 to 9. If you look at verse 6, in explaining how slaves should relate to their masters, he says, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. That's, That's the core motive in the heart of a slave toward their master is the fact that they are slaves of Christ. And then if you look down at verse 9, Paul says the same thing about masters. Masters should treat their slaves a certain way because they too are slaves of Christ. In in verse 9, he says, uh, talking about giving up threatening, and then he says, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven. In other words, there's no distinction in the eyes of Christ. Slaves are slaves of Christ. Masters are masters of Christ. They share Masters are slaves of Christ. They share the same master. They are slaves of the same king. And that identity as slaves of Christ is what gives form to their particular vocations as slaves or as masters. The same is true for us. Our identity, your identity in Christ, is you are a slave of Christ. You belong to him. Without any qualification or caveats or any other explanation that would somehow minimize it, You are a slave of Christ if you're a Christian. He is your master. He owns you. He rules you. You are his possession. He determines what assignments he gives you. He's the one to whom you're accountable. And he loves you. You see, it's miserable to be the slave of a cruel, tyrant kind of master. But it is wonderful to be the slave of a master like Jesus. Because if you think about it, we're being told here in Ephesians 6 that we are slaves of Christ. But just a few verses before this in Ephesians 5, we're told we're the bride of Christ. And we're told that Christ loves us like his own body and that he loved us by giving himself up for us and that he nourishes and cherishes us and cares for us and provides all that we need out of kind, gentle, gentle, tender affection for us. We're the bride of Christ. And we can't separate what it is to be a slave of Christ from the reality of what it is to be the bride of Christ. It is a good thing to be owned by a master who also calls himself your husband, who loves you. It's a miserable thing to be a slave of a tyrant. And that's exactly what we were outside of Christ. We were slaves of Satan. The scripture makes that very plain. We obey not our heavenly father, but the father of this world, Satan, who is diametrically opposed to the kingdom of God. So we are, that is our identity. We are slaves of Christ. And the way that we approach the various dynamics of our responsibilities in this life, whether we're under authority or we're in authority in some capacity, the way that you approach the various responsibilities that have been given to you in life communicates something about the master to whom you belong. Everything you do as a Christian communicates something of the master to whom you're enslaved. Have you ever considered when you walk into a store or a workplace, an office environment, let's say a bank, if you walk into a bank and you see the various employees that are there and you start to enter in and you can 
start making some observations about how things work, it doesn't take long to get a feel for what kind of environment that bank is. If the employees working there are collectively cheerful and welcoming and the place is organized and the demeanor is calm and relaxed and people seem to be diligent, it communicates something about the general environment of that workplace. But even more than that, it communicates something about the management of that workplace. And the opposite is also true. If you walk into a bank and it's immediately cold, there's, there's no warm welcome, it's disorganized, people seem stressed out and, uh, and, and distracted and the work seems inefficient, it suggests there's, there's probably an issue, not just with the, the employees, it suggests there's an issue with the management. The type of observations that you make of the workplace reveal something of the authority that's over it. And the same is true for every single one of us as Christians. As people look at our lives and as they see how we relate horizontally with other people, we're suggesting something about our vertical relationship with our authority, who is Christ. And we're communicating something about the kind of master that we serve. And so a good question to ask ourselves is, as we go about our various vocations and callings in life, as you go about your work as a carpenter or an electrician, a student, a mother, a son, a daughter, a roommate, as you go about your various responsibilities and your various realms of vocation, what does your life suggest about your master? And more specifically, what does it, ref- more specifically, when you relate to authority, either under authority or over authority, what does your relationship to authority suggest about the one to whom you're under as your authority? So we're all equally slaves of Christ. That's the foundation of the argument Paul is making in these verses. And as slaves of Christ, all that we do in our vocation is an expression of our submission to our master, our identity. Now, before we go uh, further into the passage, I think it's important to address an obvious question that perhaps comes to the mind of, of some of you as you read a passage like this. Paul is addressing slaves, and he's addressing masters. And he's telling slaves, as we'll see, to be obedient to their masters. And he's telling masters to treat their slaves fairly. But you notice what he doesn't say. Paul doesn't say, masters, set your slaves free. Because slavery is a wicked practice. And so it raises the question, why does Paul not address explicitly the sinfulness of slavery? Why doesn't he take advantage of the opportunity to say, stop having slaves, set them free? Well, the Bible clearly condemns the kind of slavery that might come to our mind when we think of slavery in terms of the transatlantic slave trade. The Bible condemns kidnapping and stealing men or women for the purpose of possessing and selling them. For example, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, in verse 9, Paul is listing a long list of wicked practices, of evil men. And right in the middle of that list of wicked practices, he, he uses the noun kidnappers, literally enslavers, which is how it's translated in the ESV, kidnappers and enslavers. He's saying those who would kidnap, steal another human being for the purpose of selling them or using them for any other purpose, that person is a wicked person. He condemns it. We see the same thing in Exodus chapter 21, where it says, he who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he is found in his possession, shall surely be put to death. 
If you kidnap a man for the purpose of selling him, or if you purchase a man who's been kidnapped, Exodus says, you should be put to death. That's a wicked thing to do. Of course, the Old Testament has other forms of slavery that were regulated by the law. But what I'm referring to is the kind of slavery that likely comes to our mind when we think of slavery, which is the stealing of a human being and selling him for possession. And so the kind of slavery that Paul's talking about or addressing here in the first century Roman context is a very different kind of slavery. It's estimated that up to one-third of the population of Rome, of the, of the Greco-Roman society, was slaves. Up to one-third of the population, up to 60 million people were slaves. And there were any reasons for which someone might become a slave. Sometimes someone became a slave, yes, because of a conquest in battle. And having conquested, conquered a certain city, those individuals would become slaves. That's true. That did happen. But there were many other reasons as well. Someone might have gone into slavery because they owed a great debt, and slavery was the only way that they could ever repay it. Or they might have been made slaves because of a crime that they'd committed, and as a punishment, they were sold into slavery. Or they may have sold themselves willingly and voluntarily into slavery because it was an opportunity to improve their circumstances. Because as a slave in the first century, you often had greater likelihood of receiving an education. You probably increased your chances of attaining Roman citizenship. And you often were given meaningful roles in society, like being a teacher or a doctor. And so when we think of slavery in the first century, it's, it's very different than what comes to mind in the 18th and 19th centuries. Of course, slavery was still, even at that time, a relinquishment of personal rights and privileges. You were becoming, legally, the possession of another person. And sadly, there were, of course, occasions of abuse of that authority, slaves who were terribly mistreated. And that's all true. Paul is not here condoning slavery. In these verses, Paul is not saying slavery is a good thing. Slavery, in any form, is not a part of the creation ordinance or the creation establishment by God. It's a result of the fall. It's the result of sin. There's nothing good about it. There's nothing inherently valuable about it. But what Paul is doing is that he's recognizing that slavery is an intricate part of the society. It's, it's important to mention also, when, when Paul is addressing, the only, the only individual address we have from Paul toward anyone in the New Testament, one-on-one, who was a slave owner, it's Philemon. And as he addresses Philemon... He encourages him to set his slave Onesimus free. And so in the one instance that we have of a personal address from Paul to a slave owner, he is encouraging Philemon to set Onesimus free. And then in 1 Corinthians 7, when Paul is speaking of, you know, whatever condition you were found in when you were saved, you should remain in that condition. He says to slaves, if you were found as a slave, you know, don't, don't worry about it. Continue as a slave. But then he says, but if you can attain freedom, then you should. You should try to attain freedom if you can. And so Paul's not condoning slavery. He's not promoting it. But he's simply addressing the reality of of the culture and of the context. Whether he liked it or not, 60 million people in the society were slaves. Meaning there was also a very large number of people who owned those slaves. And his primary concern here is not to overthrow the structure of Roman society. His purpose here is to help each person within that society live in a godly way according to the commands of Christ. So to sum up what I've said so far, Paul is writing to both slaves, and he's writing to masters, 
Both slaves and masters share this common identity as slaves of Christ, and it is that identity which serves as the foundation for how they carry out their particular calling or vocation. So as we look at the passage now, after a very long introduction, the the rest of the sermon won't be as long, I promise, we can break the passage up into two points, very uh, straightforwardly, I think, as you would expect. Verses 5 to 8, Paul's addressing slaves, so we could entitle that section, Slaves of Christ Who Are Under Authority. Verses 5 to 8, Slaves of Christ Who Are Under Authority. And then verse 9, Slaves of Christ Who Are In Authority. Slaves of Christ Who Are In Authority. Whether they're under authority or in authority, they are slaves of Christ. So first, Paul addresses slaves of Christ under authority in verses 5 to 8. Now, obviously, no one in this room is the slave of another person. And so the natural question possibly that comes to mind is, what relevance does Paul's instruction to slaves have for me living in the 21st century? How can I possibly find any relevance for this in my own life? And obviously, it's true that it's not a direct correlation one-to-one between slaves in that day and us in our contemporary context. But there are plenty of other principles that that apply to us. Most of us find ourselves under authority on a day-to-day basis in some way or another. We all answer answer to somebody. We are accountable to somebody, most of us. And so in those different relationships of authority that we have in life, we can draw principles from the relationships of slaves to their masters, and we can apply them to our own uh, experience, our own circumstances. So whether you are a child under the authority of your parents, which we saw last week, whether you are a student under the authority of professors, at least with regard to your schooling, whether you are an employee under the authority of your employers, whatever the relationship of authority might be, there are principles here that uh, require some form of response on your part and how you relate to the authority in your life. The main point Paul is making in verses 5 to 8, is really quite straightforward, and it's simply that we should obey. We should obey those who are in authority over us. We shouldn't obey them if it leads us into sin, but in all other circumstances, we should obey those who are in authority over us. And he describes obedience in two ways. In verses 5 to 6, he describes our obedience as reverent and sincere obedience. Reverent sincerity should characterize our obedience reverent sincerity. Verses 5 and 6, Paul says, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Our obedience to those in authority over us, workplace, home, classroom, should be characterized by reverent Sincerity. Paul says our obedience should be characterized by fear and trembling, reverence. Fear and trembling. He's not talking about fearing and trembling because of the person who's in authority over you, but he's talking about fear and trembling in the sight of Christ, before Christ. We saw the same thing back in Ephesians 5, verse 21, where Paul says to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. 
In other words, Paul's not saying you should be afraid of the wrath of Christ and make sure that you do everything right in your various responsibilities so that Christ is not angry and doesn't punish you. That's not what Paul is saying. But he's saying that our hearts should be characterized by a reverent, a fearful, and even a trembling sense of wanting to please Christ because we love him. We recognize that every responsibility given to us in this life, from the, greatest to the, from the smallest to the greatest, every responsibility given to us is given to us by Christ as a means of pleasing him. And so we receive it with fear and with trembling in the sense that we want to make the most of the opportunities he's given us to please him, to honor him, to glorify him. Paul says fear and trembling should characterize our obedience and sincerity. So it's reverent sincerity. In verse 5, he says, in the sincerity of your heart. The word sincerity literally means of, to be of singleness of mind. He's saying that we should be of one mind at all times. We should, have, we should be the same kind of person at all times, whether or not the boss is around. That's, that's the point. We should exercise the same diligence, no matter whether or not the person who's in authority over us is present or not present. We should be the same person at all times. When I was in college, I worked uh, at O'Charlie's in Christiansburg as a waiter. And I remember maybe a week or so in advance being told next, whatever day it was, next Friday, the owner is coming to town. And when he comes to town, we need to make sure that everything is in order. And so when I came to work that day, sure enough, everything was in order. Uh, I'm not saying O'Charlie's is generally radically disorganized, but at least on this day, it was very organized, more than normal. There was a noticeable difference in the whole atmosphere of the restaurant. All the waiters had their shirts tucked in like they were supposed to. They had their aprons on the right way. Uh, no one had their phones out. No one was standing, lounging on the, you know, the bar or the counter, wasting time. No one was goofing off or yelling in the back in the kitchen. The cups were where they were supposed to be. The napkins and forks and knives and all that was where it was supposed to be. Everything was well organized and well put together because the owner was coming to town. People recognize that when the owner comes to town, you need to make sure you make a good impression because he's the one in authority. And your livelihood depends on his approval. Paul is saying, whether or not the authority is around should make no difference in the life of the Christian. Because our authority is always around. And that's his point. The ultimate authority is always present. He is always watching. He observes every action that we make with our hands, every word we speak with our mouths, and every thought and intention of our hearts. Christ is present with us. And so whether or not our earthly boss, our earthly authority is present, what Paul is saying is you should be of the same mind at all times. You should be just as diligent when the boss is nowhere in sight as you are when he walks past your computer. You should have the same things on your screen if he were leaning over your shoulder looking at your computer than you do when he's nowhere around. Why? Because Christ is there. And you are primarily called to please Jesus. And you pleasing your boss and doing what your boss requires, that's a means of pleasing Christ. It's never an end in itself. So the aim, the ultimate aim is pleasing Jesus, who is always present. And Paul is saying here, therefore, with wholeheartedness, with sincerity and single-mindedness, do your work well. Carry out your responsibilities diligently and faithfully with reverence to Christ. So reverent sincerity marks our obedience, and then uh, 
our obedience is, is also motivated by a greater reward. It's motivated by a greater reward, which is in verses 7 to 8. With goodwill, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. It can be really discouraging, whether uh, it's at work or in the home or in the classroom, when you feel like you have put forth all the effort required, like you have gone out of your way to perform well, to carry out all of your tasks the way that you were called to carry them out, asked to carry them out, and you don't get any commendation or recognition for it. It can deflate us. It can dishearten us. It can make us think, is it even worth it? My parents never notice when I do the dishes. My husband never acknowledges the hard work that I do in the home. My boss didn't even mention this assignment that I completed on time, and I think very well, he said nothing about it. And it can discourage us, it can dishearten us, and it can make us think, why work so hard? If I'm not going to be commended for it, if there's no reward, then why worry about it? Why do it? Paul's reminding us here that praise or commendation from earthly masters is never the ultimate goal, and there is always a greater commendation and a greater reward to be found in Christ. Even if every earthly authority fails to acknowledge you or commend you for the work that you've done, Christ will never overlook a single one of your efforts to please him, to serve him faithfully, to carry out your responsibilities well for his sake. He'll never be too distracted to see it. He'll never be too cold to care about it. He will always see the work that you do for his sake, and he will always reward it. And so we should obey for a greater reward. And then thirdly, we should obey because nothing we do is meaningless. We should obey because nothing we do is meaningless. Paul's writing here again to slaves. They're the lowest on the social ladder. Though they could have had various uh, opportunities as slaves, socially they're still the lowest. And many of them would have been given very menial and mundane tasks to do day in and day out. And yet Paul is telling them that their work matters. It is significant. It has value. It has dignity. Because it's done as to Christ. Because it's done for him. I know not everyone here cares much about baseball, but it's warm outside and, uh, and baseball is on the mind of some here in the room. And uh, maybe not all of you know, does everyone know what a bat boy is? Yeah, some of you. So a bat boy is assigned by the team with the responsibility of taking care of the equipment of the baseball team. And so he's the one who goes out and gets the bat after each person hits, and he brings it back to the dugout. He makes sure the helmets are in order in the dugout. Uh, sometimes he'll take a baseball out to the umpire and hand it to him to make sure the ump is well stocked. He occasionally gets water for the different players. He's a bat boy. Now imagine that there's a 12-year-old boy, and, uh, and he's given the opportunity to be the bat boy for a local youth baseball team, 13 and 14-year-olds. He thinks it'd be interesting enough, and so he accepts, and he becomes the bat boy for this local Radford youth baseball team. He does that for a couple months. There's nothing really all that glamorous about his job. Uh, When the team wins, no one is saying afterward, man, what a good game the bat boy had tonight. We, we, We really owe the win to him. 
But I'm sure the boy probably enjoys it nonetheless. It's a fun responsibility, I guess. But imagine one day that this 12-year-old boy gets a call from Dave Roberts, who's the manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers. And Dave Roberts tells him that they really want him to come to L.A. and be the bat boy for him. And he, of course, the boy's astounded, amazed, he's excited, and he very quickly accepts the invitation and he moves to L.A. with the permission of his parents and he becomes the full-time bat boy for the Los Angeles Dodgers. Now, if you think about that, nothing really changed with regard to his responsibilities. He still goes on the field and gets the bat every time someone hits the ball. He still brings the bat into the dugout. He still lines up the helmets. He still has to run baseballs out to the ump from time to time. He still gets cups of waters when it's needed. What has changed is not what he's doing, but who he's doing it for. Rather than retrieving bats for 14-year-old boys, he's retrieving bats for some of the greatest baseball players in the game. He's not just handing a cup of water to someone who's a couple years older than him. He's handing waters to Freddie Freeman and J.D. Martinez. And the same is true for Christians. What matters is not what you're doing. What gives value to your work is not what you're doing as much as it is who you're doing it for. What gives us the ultimate meaning and value is our identity. We are slaves of Jesus. And as slaves of Jesus, from the smallest to the greatest task, they are suddenly infused with worth. If you struggle with finding meaning in your calling as a mother, or as a student, or as a doctor, or as a dental hygienist, Paul is reminding you that nothing you do is meaningless. Every last task you perform, every diaper you change, and every procedure you perform, from the smallest to the greatest, every last one of them is like you offering up a sacrifice of worship to Jesus. And I wonder what would change about the way you approach your job or your vocation if you stopped thinking so much about whether or not you liked your job or whether or not you found meaning in it and started thinking more and more about who you perform your job for. In order to find value in our work, we don't need to immediately begin looking for a career change. That, of course, is never uh, out of the question. I'm not saying it's inherently sinful to look for a career change, but that's not the ultimate solution for you. You can find value in your work right where you are. You just need to remember who your master is. So Paul writes to slaves, tells them to obey their masters. He infuses their work with value. The same is true for us as slaves of Christ. If we're under authority in whatever vocation that is, everything we do is to be done reverently unto Christ because it is infused with value when we do it for his sake. And then next, and more briefly, Paul addresses slaves of Christ who are in authority. Slaves of Christ who are in authority over other people. He says in verse 9, And masters do the same things to them, and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Once again, There's not a direct one-to-one correlation between masters of slaves in the first century and 
us in our current circumstances today, but there are plenty of parallels we can draw, uh, especially when it comes to those who are in some position of authority. Most of us find ourselves in one way or another in some position of authority with influence over someone. And there are principles to be drawn from the way that masters treat their slaves in the first century to how we ought to treat those who are under our leadership or under our authority. So whether we're parents, again, we saw this last week, or husbands, which we saw a few weeks ago, whether we're managers in the office or owners of a company, whatever it is, we need to recognize that God has entrusted us with a stewardship. We are, we've been placed in positions of authority with people under our influence and leadership. And we need to ask, what does it look like to exercise authority the right way? Well, first, Paul says, masters should exercise authority by looking like their slaves. By looking like their slaves. He's, he's just told slaves, do everything with your heart as unto the Lord. Do it with sincerity. Do it with reverence to Christ. Treat your masters not as your master deserves. Treat your master as Christ deserves. And now he turns his attention to the masters, and he says, you, masters, do the same thing to them. Treat them the same way that I'm telling them to treat you. Show them the same kind of respect. Show them the same kind of consideration. Fulfill your obligations to them, not according to what they deserve, but according to what Christ deserves. And so we're to do the same thing, if we're in a position of authority, to those under our authority as they are called to do to us. We're to show them respect, consideration, and the fear of Christ, ultimately as an offering of worship to Christ. And then we're to do it without threatening. We're to exercise authority without threatening. Do the same things to them and give up threatening. If I tell you to give up something, what does it imply about your past history with that thing? If I say, give up smoking... It implies that you've been a smoker. I say, some, anyway, no more examples needed. Uh, give up something, it implies you've been doing it, now stop. And I think, I think that's implied here. When Paul tells masters, give up threatening, I think he's implying up to this point, masters have been prone to mistreat and threaten and abuse their authority toward their slaves. And the reason is, that was fairly common in society. Slaves, as I've mentioned, they had lots of opportunities, but they still were not considered equals in society. But Paul is saying, no, they're equals. They, they, they are no different than you in the kingdom of Christ. And you have no right to threaten or mistreat or abuse those who are under your authority. Give up threatening. As a Christian parent, I can testify to the fact that threatening is effective. It works. And it works quickly. I can threaten my children with harshness. I, I, can, I can yell at them. I can speak sternly to them in a, in a graceless way. And I am fairly confident that most of the time I will get what I want out of their behavior. But I do it at the expense of communicating to them the kind of authority that I'm under as a slave of Christ. When I abuse my authority toward my children, I am communicating to them something that is false about the authority of Jesus Christ. The same is true in the workplace. As, as a manager, as one who has authority over others, you can guilt and you can manipulate others into conformity. You can threaten, you can speak harshly, but you do it at the expense of communicating to them what is true about Jesus as your master. 
We're never, to, we're never free to use our authority as it seems best to us because we're not our ultimate authority. We are under the authority of Christ, and any ounce of authority that's been given to us is to be used as an expression of our submission to him. And then secondly, or thirdly, we should recognize the impartiality of God. So I've said we should treat our slaves the same way that they're called to treat us. We don't have slaves. We should treat those under our authority the same way that they're called to treat us. We should give up threatening. And now, thirdly, we should recognize the impartiality of God. Paul says, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Paul's point here is that whatever your particular role is in life, it's no reflection of your value in the kingdom of God, as I've already said. The person who is in a position of authority in whatever context, whether it's the church, the home, the workplace, or the classroom, the person who is in a position of authority and recognition is no better off in the kingdom of God than the person who is called to live a life of quiet submission under authority. Christ finds no less pleasure in the faithful life of glad submission under authority than he does the life of one who exercises authority. We are all fully Christ's. We belong to him. And in whatever calling we are in, we have equal opportunity to please our master. Our vocation, whether it's authority or not, is no reflection of our value in the kingdom of heaven. That's what Paul says in Galatians 3. He says, For all of you you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There's no inherent distinction in the kingdom of God when it comes to the value that we have in the sight of our master. And so Paul is reminding masters of that. And he's saying, look, your slaves are no less valuable in the sight of Christ than you are. And it is a terrible thing to mistreat someone who is cherished and loved by Christ. That's Paul's point. Don't underestimate the damage done when we mistreat other believers, especially those who we've been entrusted with under our care and under our authority to care for. So as we conclude then, let me bring it back to the main point. Paul's addressed slaves. He's addressed masters. He's made clear that whatever our vocation might be, the most important part of us, the most important aspect of our identity is that we are slaves of Jesus If you struggle with discontentment, which is how we began this evening, considering the the inward struggle of discontentment and always thinking life would be so much better if, if I had a different calling, if I had a different job, if I lived somewhere else, if my circumstances would change, if you struggle with discontentment, then remember that Christ is not expecting nor commanding you to find the job that perfectly satisfies you. He's not commanding you or instructing you to find circumstances that perfectly satisfy you. Instead, he is telling you to do your job in your circumstances, in this moment, whatever that might be, to do your job to the best of your ability with a whole heart as a means of honoring your master who is in heaven. And it is when we commit our hearts to doing that, when we find meaning not in what we do, but who we do it for, that we will find our hearts far more easily satisfied in the work that God has given us to do. The problem of discontentment is a problem of identity. We're trying to find fullness in something that Christ did not design us to find it in. Contentment is found in resting in who you are in Jesus, 
no matter what the circumstances around you might be. So, as we conclude then, who are you working for? Who are you working for? As you go about your day-to-day tasks, responsibilities, wherever that might be, where do you spend the majority of your time? In those places, who are you working for? Are you doing all of your work, the work God has given you at this moment in your life, as to Christ? Because you know that you are his slave. That is where meaning is found. Not in how well we do it, not in how satisfying it is to us, but in the fact that we belong to him and he's given us the opportunity to serve him from the smallest to the greatest task with which we've been assigned. Now, I don't want to conclude without at least mentioning Paul is not in any way teaching a works-based salvation here. He's not saying that somehow we're rewarded by how, in terms of salvation, eternal um, the, the eternal inheritance of salvation. We do not get rescued from our sin because of our efforts to be faithful in our vocation. That's not what Paul is saying. We will all fail in our vocation. Multiple times a day, most likely. We will perform tasks trying to do a good job, but coming up short in some way or the other. We'll struggle with sin and temptation. We'll mess up. And we'll need forgiveness. And we'll need grace. Paul is not saying... Build your confidence on how faithful you are in your vocation. He's saying, first of all, start with your true confidence, which is Jesus Christ. He is your salvation. It is his death and his life alone that serves as the foundation for your hope. Rest in who you are in Jesus. And out of that rest, go and do your work and do it well as to the Lord. We're saved by faith alone, through Christ alone. But when we're saved by faith alone, through Christ alone... He fills our hearts with a desire to be faithful. Not to earn his love, but because he loves us. Because we want to love him well. So may God help us then to be faithful in the various vocations that he has called us to in this life. Let's pray. Father, we do confess before you uh, that often we fail to trust you the way that we should with regard to the circumstances that you've placed us in, the jobs that you've given us, our marital status, whatever it might be, Father, we often fail to cast all of our cares on you and find your comfort to be all that we need to endure. And instead, we often look for fulfillment and identity in so many other things. But we pray, God, that you would help us, those who have fixed their hope in Jesus, help us to find the fullness of our joy and identity and meaning in the fact that we are slaves of your Son, who is our gracious Master, And we pray that you would help us as those who belong to Jesus, help us to reflect faithfully in all that we do, the kind of master that we serve, that Christ would be honored, that we would adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in the way that we live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.